Hey, welcome to Tape to Tape, powered by the new Ram 1500 Sport Build exclusively for Canadians. I'm Ryan Dixon. I'm a writer with Sportsnet.ca. Joining me on the other line, as always, Sportsnet's NHL editor, Rory Boylan. Rory, what's up? Oh, man. Well, we got some on-ice action, Ryan. We're, we're actually back. It feels like some kind of normal, but not really normal. Yeah. But uh, hey, we get to talk about hockey again. We've been expecting this. been building up for a while, but... Um, you know, you're going to introduce our guests here shortly, but I mean, these guys have been at practice for the first time in four months, so I, I can't wait to get into it with them. Oh, buddy, we are talking about practice. We're going to do that <laughs> with Ken Weeb, our newest Sportsnet correspondent. He's in the ground in Winnipeg. But first, let's bring in our trusted Montreal correspondent, Eric Angles. Eric, how you doing? How's it been being back at Broussard? I've been good. Personally, I hope Kenny's not actually in the ground. Out the action in Broussard, action in Montreal has been pretty interesting. For one thing, the pace has been elevated to a point that I didn't expect right off the hop. And I think, you know, all the coaches right now are trying to figure out the best way to pace their teams in order for them to peak when we get into game action. But you know, it just seems as though it's ramping up day by day here, and it started off at a pretty elevated level. So I'm pretty impressed. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of storylines around every team. Um, so let's get into some of them with Montreal. And I think one of the ones that we were wondering about at the start of camp was around Max Domi, um, and and if he would be, you know, going with the team to the bubble or what was going to happen there. And it starts out that they're going to wait seven to ten days to decide when to bring him into camp. So I guess just explain um, what's behind that decision and when you might expect him to be on the ice with the team. You know, I wish we could say for sure what the case was without making a whole bunch of assumptions, but we're kind of left to do that with the NHL's disclosure policy on injuries and COVID tests and uh, positives and negatives and false positives and all these things. Um, I think the fact that Last week, three players tested positive for COVID on the Canadians, according to a report by a colleague, Arpin Basu, The Athletic, um, which was later amended to say that two of those tests were false positives, uh, had everything to do with the decision that was made on Domi. And yes, Mark Bergevin said that it was a kind of a two weeks worth of conversation between Domi, his agents and medical professionals in the organization and the league um, in terms of what to do in his case with type 1 diabetes and celiac disease. And, and for him to not, you know, be exposed any more than he needs to be. And they decided together that ultimately with what happened with the, the tests in Montreal, they would wait seven to ten days, see if things settle down, see if everybody comes up negative for a few days in a row here and, and reassures Max uh, that he can be in this situation and be safe. And, you know, Mark Bergevin said he wants to be here. I've heard, you know, in touching base with certain sources that Domi wants to be here. And he's a big factor on this team if he's going to be here to think, you know, you have to think he wants to be here. This guy has waited his entire career for an opportunity to play playoff hockey. And it's it's right there for him for the taking in a, in a contract year uh, and everything that revolves around his situation. Um, he can be such a huge factor for this team in that playing series and moving forward if they get past Pittsburgh. So we'll see what develops there. One other big ongoing subplot for the Canadians is a new face, Alexander Romanov. We know he won't be playing, but he has signed 
a contract. Why don't you take us through this whole process that you detailed uh, closely all along the way? Is it unfolded? Um, what occurred with Romanoff and what's the Canadians incentive and the players incentive for getting him involved uh, coming to the bubble from Russia? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, when, when we started this process a couple months back, you know, we were told all along that these players, players like Romanov or Kaprasov in Minnesota or Sorokin in New York uh, wouldn't have the opportunity to play despite the fact that every other year entry-level players, you know, that were drafted by their organizations coming over from the KHL or other leagues, be it the NCAA, have been allowed to join their teams post-deadline because they're on reserve lists and essentially, you know, go in as ringers into the playoffs. And it's always been the case. So it was kind of an arbitrary ruling from the NHL just because they were going to be including eight other teams in this tournament to say, you know, we're not going to do this this year. And I think the players fought back against it. I know the agents certainly did. And ultimately what we ended up with was a situation where you would allow a player to burn the first year of his deal, but he still wouldn't be allowed to play. And then it was an oversight on the NHL's part as to whether or not players like Romanov could join for phase three and travel with the team for phase four just to be around them and, you know, creating some kind of incentive for the teams themselves to enter into agreement and allow players to burn that deal um, or the first year of that deal, because ultimately they weren't gaining much uh, to allow them to do that. If they couldn't have them around and get, get their players acclimated to being around the team, seeing how the organization works, uh, having this kind of experience, even if they can't play the games. And, you know, I think one way or the other, whether they were allowed to join for phase three or phase four, I think Montreal, Minnesota, New York would have gone in the same direction and allowed these players to sign and burn. Because the last thing you want is you spend all this time convincing a player that you know is a key part of your future and potentially, you know, your near future in, in starting next season to get them over here. And then all of a sudden you're in a situation where they're going to sign for another year in Russia and you have to go through the process all over again when you had them basically set to come over and, and you're fighting against that possibility that they could get injured there or sick or they could go there for an entire season and then come over 40 games into the next one. And then, you know, for Montreal specifically, they're trying to move forward. There, there's a key this player is a key element of them taking a big step forward and to get him after an entire season in the KHL and have him come in and potentially have an impact and you turn yourself into a playoff team and you're going to need to rely on him and he's totally hit the wall. I mean, it's, it was just a terrible situation all around. So I think the Canadians are very happy that they got him under contract and that they'll be seeing him in Montreal soon enough. All right. So I want to get into some of the like observations you've seen. You've been at practice for a few days now, but I, I just, before that, I just want to start with like, like what's it like being back at the arena? What what kind of processes are you going through? What's it like watching? And I know you guys are doing Zoom calls instead of being able to talk to the players face to face. But so, like, how much different is it now than it normally would be? It's very different, and I would be lying if I didn't say that I had certain trepidation about coming coming back to work in this respect. You know, we've been locked up for four months, uh, been in a pretty good groove, a healthy groove here at home. And, um, but on the other side of it, I was so excited to get back and get back to a sense of somewhat normalcy in terms of my job. And a big part of it outside of talking to the players and building those relationships is observing what's happening on the ice and being able to kind of be the eyes and ears and, and uh, for Sportsnet regarding the Montreal Canadiens. And 
it's just been uh, it's been fascinating. It's been different. You know, you you walk in masked, you you fill out a waiver or a form that basically says that you don't have symptoms. Your temperature is checked immediately upon arrival. Uh, then you're led to an area where there's tables set up for various reporters, and you're at least six feet apart from everybody around you. And it's it's um, it's utterly strange, <laughs> but it's. Uh, but it's the world we're living in and we just have to accept it. And uh, I'm, for one, I'm extremely thankful to be watching these guys do what they do best because it allows me to do what I do best and at least get back into uh, a certain gear and a level of, of normal that I'm used to. Uh, as with training camp 1.0, it's uh, dangerous to get ahead of yourself during training camp 2.0 here. But just wondering about some early observations and maybe specifically Jesperi Kotkaniemi. I know we've seen Claude Julien praise him for looking fast out there. He's coming back from an abdominal injury, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there were some questions around him. Um, obviously, the way this year went, his uh, second season, but sounds like he's kind of come out of the gate well here in uh, in Chapter 2. Yeah, I think, you know, beyond what Claude Julien said about him, which he's most impressed with his pace and his skating and and what he believes is that's that's the the clinching element of everything else everything else falls into place from there and i would certainly agree with that i had my own observations watching him for the first time in months and i was really impressed i was really impressed with what he looked like out there um energetic as always but he really you could see the pace is up he looks stronger on his skates uh laterally his movement looks better i mean it's hard to go on those first impressions before we spoke to the coach because, you know, we hadn't seen NHLers do what they do for, for months. So I, I didn't want to jump the gun in, in terms of my own observations because maybe I was just reading too far into things. And you had to recalibrate. To yeah, I had to recalibrate essentially. But, you know, for the coach, one thing that's interesting about Jesperi Kakaniemi is as, thing, as, as he was struggling throughout this year and the Canadians were losing games, you know, Claude Julien was being asked questions about certain things and somehow found a way to incorporate Jesperi Kakaniemi into his answer and, and mostly for disparaging reasons to say, you know, he made a mistake here or he made a mistake there or, you know, it's not his fault. He's young. He's being put in situations that he's not used to and he'll learn. You know, I don't think they were purposely negative comments that, you know, he just wanted to disparage this player. Uh, I think it just came down to explaining why they were losing certain games and having to trust certain players in situations they're not accustomed to. And in his case in particular, a player that was struggling and, and clearly having a tough time keeping pace in a second season in the NHL and, and getting frustrated. And it was apparent. But the fact that Claude continuously kind of talked about Kakaniemi when he wasn't being asked about him, and it was mostly in a negative light, you know, it was read into to the nth degree here in, in Montreal and, uh, you know, outside of here in, in different radio stations and, and on social media. So what really caught my attention was yesterday when he was asked a question about Nick Suzuki. That was the first occasion where Claude went out of his way to praise Kakaniemi and the speed that he's seeing from him in the pace. And that to me is a really good sign. It's not him just answering a question about Kakaniemi. It's him going out of his way to say, hey, this, this guy grabbed my attention right from the start. And, you know, what more important development could you see for the Canadians than Kakaniemi fulfilling his promise as the third overall pick in 2018 and becoming the player the Canadians need him to be moving forward? It's huge for their reset. 
it's huge for the immediate future, especially as they wait to find out what's going to happen with Domi. Um, they're not going to be able to get Philip Deneau out against Crosby and Malkin. They're going to have to depend on Nick Suzuki up the middle. They're going to have to depend on Jesperi Kakiemi potentially. And uh, at the very least, what what we're finding out is that Kakiemi is carving out a role for himself that might not have been there to begin with. And, and it could be an elevated role beyond what we would have imagined if he was able to work his way into the lineup. So there's a lot of like uncertainty as to how, you know, like I imagine momentum doesn't count for anything, uh, how you left off in March and and how are players going to pick it up in, in midsummer and everything. And there's like this debate on who's going to be helped more by this. Is it going to be the young teams with some pep in their step or is it going to be the veteran teams that really know how to approach these things? And Montreal's kind of got a nice mixture where you're going to have you know, you need contributions from young guys like Kotkin, Yemi, and Suzuki. But I, I think we can probably agree that if the Habs are going to do some surprise winning here, Weber and Price are going to need to be just, especially Price, going to need to be on their games. How have they looked so far? Like, have you been able to extract anything from watching them that, oh, you know, he, he's back, he's ready to go? Or just how have those two looked so far? You know, they look good. We've only seen Weber for two of three practices. He missed Tuesday's session for some unexplained reason and then ended up back on the ice looking no worse for wear towards the end of that session. So, you know, we closely told us he would be on the ice Wednesday and there he was. And he looked like his sturdy physical uh, self. Uh, he practiced against Shea Weber. He may take it easy in terms of not ripping 100-mile-hour uh, slap shots at, at feet or stuff like that. But on the physical end, if you're engaged with him in a battle drill, he's going to give you everything he has. And that, you know, we saw at one point he, he took Laurent Dauphin with one hand and just tossed him to the ice. And it was it was vintage classic Weber. So he looks to be great. And we know that when we left off at the pause, you know, he was dealing with a pretty severe ankle injury that was taking quite a bit for him to, you know, play in games. It was pretty remarkable that he was able to do that. I wish I could properly explain what it's like to watch Carey Price practice on a daily basis. You know, when people ask me what my opinion is of Price, I always say that I think he's the best goaltender in the world. But I say that from the privilege of being able to watch him practice every day. And and it's just, it's a unique and different perspective than most people get because all they see is him playing in front of, or behind, I should say, a team that, let's face it, is nowhere near um, the quality level of some of the other ones in, in this league. And, and unfortunately for him at times, it, the blame falls on him even when he's playing well. But man, watching him practice on a daily basis and watching him from the angle that I've been on, which is directly behind him, is, is absolutely amazing. I don't want to give away too much of my observations on price because I do have a notebook planned for Friday on SportsCenter. And I do want to get into what it's like watching him from from directly behind him in a practice situation because there's certain things that I picked up there uh, that make it that much more special. This this guy athletically is just incredible, but his level of patience is, is on a whole other level. All right, so we know those guys will have to be um, huge factors for Montreal if they're going to do something in a best-of-three series against Sidney Crosby and Pittsburgh. I wonder if you could identify a couple other potential X factors. I'm thinking maybe a Jonathan Druin who had, you know, largely a lost year, but has now had this time uh, to recover. You mentioned the name Nick Suzuki earlier as well. I mean, there's so many storylines you kind of forget, like the fact he was having such a solid season as a rookie. 
who or what would you point to as a couple other uh, potential X factors for Montreal outside the big boys, Price and Weber? Yeah, you know, I really look at the depth options. I look specifically at a guy like Jake Evans, the only right-handed centerman the Canadians have currently up the middle, and a guy that at a certain point over his 10 or so games that he was able to get in towards the end of the year, you know, he was upwards of 60% in the face-off circle, which was pretty impressive for a guy who had never played NHL games before. Um, he's a smart, heady player. Uh, doesn't do anything particularly great, but does everything quite well. And I wonder if he could become a factor for a team that obviously is losing the center matchup with the Pittsburgh Penguins. Um, he could be an X factor. Another X factor, Noah Juleson. Here's a guy that hasn't played an NHL game in over a year and a half. He's dealt with migraine issues and vision issues after taking two shots to the face within a six-minute frame in a game against Washington in November of 2018, I think it was. I don't know. Sometimes I get my years mixed <laughs> up. Blurring, I'm pretty buddy. sure that's what it yeah. was. I mean, he's just had a nightmare over the last couple of years to deal with. To see him on the ice for three days straight without having any setbacks or any issues um, and, and looking and feeling as well as he clearly appears to be, that's a very encouraging thing because his potential as a defenseman could solidify the third pairing for the Canadians. He's, he is, outside of the guys he's competing with in Christian Follin and Kale Fleury, he has a stability factor in his own end that could that could play huge for Montreal if he could prove to be a reliable player. You know, all that said, Claude Julien Todd was asked about him specifically today and said, you know, here's a guy that obviously his development lagged with what happened to him, but the fact that he's been able to keep pace over the last three days has been impressive. Let's see how that develops over a two-week period. Let's see how he emerges in the competition because if he's up to the task, he changes the dynamic on the back end, uh, which I think everybody would agree from the outside looking in, but people that are really close to it would tell you that you know depth on the Canadians' blue line is an issue. Beyond Weber and Ben Sherrod and Jeff Petrie, um, you've got a lot of interchangeable parts, and it's all about who's going to be playing best. And we haven't seen Brett Kulak, and we haven't seen Xavier Ouellette because you know I suspected they could be two of the players that had those positive tests, or they could be out for injury reasons. I don't know. All I know is that they were in Montreal. Uh, in phase two and they haven't been able to participate in phase three as of now so how things shape up on the blue line is a serious x factor um outside of that you know like i know it might be, might be boring to, to point to the depth options but that's really what it's about for me right now well it will be the dead of summer and it will be exhibition but we are less than two weeks away from habs leafs guys so get excited <laughs> that uh, exhibition game that will come in advance of the uh, best of five series with Pittsburgh. Eric Engels will, of course, be covering the Canadians every step of the way. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Eric. It was a pleasure, guys. All right, that is Eric Engels coming up next. Ken Weeb and some Jets talk on tape to tape. Welcome back to Tape to Tape. Pleased to be joined now by the newest member of the Sportsnet family, Ken Weeb in Winnipeg. Ken, welcome to the family. Thanks for having me, guys. A great family to be part of. Uh, proud to be here. 
All right, you've been covering the Jets for a long, long time. This season, though, of course, unlike any other, what's it been like here in the early days getting back to the camp, seeing the guys, wearing the mask, getting real familiar with Zoom, all that stuff uh, at the uh, MTS place? Yeah, it's certainly uh, been interesting. We're over at the uh, Iceplex, the practice facility, so it's a little bit different than most uh, most folks are accustomed to. Uh, Got the temperature check when we walk in and uh, the masks are up and we're watching behind panes of glass instead of being in the bowl like we're familiar with. So that's been a little bit of a challenge. And then for the second half of practice, it's uh, actually watching on closed circuit TV, essentially, because there's no viewing area in that smaller part of the rink. So uh, first two days for the Jets were, were pretty standard, uh, you know, standard fare, mostly hands and feet drills, not a lot of computer battle. But today the intensity uh, kicked up on day three. So uh, that was nice to see, and you know nothing really stands out so far. Uh, lots of uh, funny commentary from Patrick Liney and things of that nature. And Connor Hellebuck looks to uh, be back to that Vesna form, even though he was facing a lot of three on O's early in training camp. But uh, still, uh, got a few big kicks up there, and we're expecting to see him on that uh, nominee list on Friday when the when the uh, Vesna finalists come out. Can the the Jets really strike me as a team that? could really surprise us here i mean they've got all the pieces they can play big they can play skilled i mean they can score we know defense was their problem uh this year what's what's your general expectation for them yeah it's so interesting rory i mean if the jets play the way they were at the end of february or into march uh, they certainly would be a team that uh, not a lot of opponents would be signing up to uh say they were thrilled to be up against, especially with, as we mentioned, Connor Hellebuck being that uh, backbone between the pipes. And uh, this is a team that that doesn't get as much credit for their offensive ability. And now part of the reason is that they weren't as offensive this year as they had been in years past. And obviously some of that was trying to be playing a more of a defensive game. And they sort of got away from their strengths to a certain degree at certain times as they were trying to tread water. Uh, as they dealt with the uh, overhauled back end and then the Dustin Bufflin situation that ended up in mutual termination. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I think that there's a lot of guys that are big stage players, if you will. I think that Mark Shifley uh, has really started to shine. I mean, two years ago, he was a dominant force as the Jets uh, made it to the conference final. You have Kyle Connor, who uh, has consistently been one of the top goal scorers in the NHL over the past three seasons, but you don't almost never hear about him uh, when it comes to talking about elite snipers. And then you have guys like Patrick Laine, who is an elite goal scorer, but now he's brought his all-around game around. And uh, Nikolai Ehlers, for me, I, I talked about him a lot with Sean Reynolds, uh, my colleague here in Winnipeg, about how he's a guy that has zero goals in 20 playoff games, but was headed towards his first 30-goal season and and really took his game to another dramatic level after watching each and every one of his shifts during the offseason. So... And then you have Blake Wheeler, who uh, is the sort of table setter for the Jets, if you will, in terms both of leadership and of being that key distributor, both in terms of his passing ability at five on five uh, and also on what has been a very good power play uh, over the last three or four years here. Talk a little bit about that defense. You mentioned it. I mean, just I have to believe unprecedented a team seeing, you know, four guys like that, Myers, Ben Schrott, Jacob Truba, and Dustin Bufflin from one year to the next going out. We saw Neil Pionk really, I think fair to say, surprise everyone. Maybe Jets Brass knew he was this good, but I don't think the rest of us did. 
Um, you know, Josh Morrissey continues to grow into a prominent role, but I mean, you mentioned it in the piece you wrote this week for sports. And I mean, Dylan DeMello very quietly under the radar was a stabilizing force. Let's face it. This blue line is not going to be as good as it was, you know, last season, but is there a chance that it could be a little more or even a lot more stable than it was in October when they were scouring the waiver wire every day? Absolutely, Ryan. I mean, Paul Maurice uh, flat out chuckled in the <laughs> in the Zoom call availability when when asked about his uh, comfort level uh, now compared to uh, September, and uh, he couldn't help himself but laugh and say, especially on day one of training camp, when the bombshell that Dustin Bufflin was not arriving uh, was also dumped on his lap after already being forced to 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 replace the entire right hand side plus Ben Sherrod and and even. Joe Morrow was a guy who played in half of the games the year prior because of all the injuries the Jets had to both Bufflin and Morrissey. So, yeah, DeMello really stabilized the back end. I mean, he's a guy that fans in Ottawa saw a lot of. And, again, one of those unheralded type of players who doesn't put up a lot of points but does all the right things to make his make life easier on his partner. And uh, we know how important it is to move the puck out of your own end uh, these days with with the speed in the game. And uh, he was really a helpful piece in getting Josh Morrissey back to the way we're used to seeing him play. And for me on the back end, nobody benefits more than Josh Morrissey from the reset. I mean, by his own admission, it was a bit of an uneven year for him. There was a lot of pressure heaped on him. Uh, he had been a consistent performer for a long time, played a lot of minutes, played on the shutdown role with Jacob Truba, lost his defense partner, uh, then lost his original defense partner, Dustin Bufflin, uh, became an alternate captain for the first time. Uh, really, I think didn't, struggle is not the right word, but I think there were a lot of expectations heaped on him. And, and also he signed that new contract that kicks in only next season, but it's only natural to think that, man, now I'm getting paid all this money next year. I have to live up to those expectations. So for me, he started to show the Josh Morrissey we're used to seeing in that January, February, and March timeline. And he looks really good in the first couple of days of camp here. I mean, he's obviously the unquestioned leader on the back end. And as you mentioned with Pionk, Everyone knew that he was a pretty impactful player on the power play for the New York Rangers, but he was able to play a lot of time in a shutdown role for the Jets alongside Dmitry Kulikov and also put up 25 power play points. No, he does not have the big blast from the point that Dustin Bufflin had, but he had the same number of power play points as a couple of players you guys are familiar with, Austin Matthews and Nikita Kucherov. And for my money, that's pretty good company to be keeping. (laughs) That's all right. I think you're doing fine here if you're in the same company of those guys. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about the forward line combinations. I, you know, we're early. We're three days into camp here, so it's hard to come to any conclusions. But do you think when the games start that Blake Wheeler is going to be playing on Mark Shifley's line or if he'll be a center on his own? Yeah, I do, uh, Roy. I was very curious. Uh, because Blake played so well in the middle after Brian Little went down early in the season, I wondered if the Jets might be tempted to go back to that combination platter. But uh, Paul Maurice talked about the familiarity obviously being a critical factor as you have all this time off. It's going to be you know four or five months before games were played. Uh, and he also liked the way the team played after Cody Eakin was acquired from the Vegas School of the Knights. So we know that Shifley and Wheeler have been a dynamic duo together in the past and when they had their most success in the playoff run, they played together. And now that Kyle Connor is moving from being a 30 goal guy to probably would have been a 40 goal guy had the season gone to its conclusion. I think he's going to lean on that group a lot. The bigger question for me was on that second line. I mean, Eakin did a nice job in that role, but to me, he's more of a guy who is probably 
best or most valuable in a checking plus type of role. He brings that snarl, that edge to the group. I wondered if there would be some temptation to using him with Adam Lowry. Uh, but Maurice is so confident in the abilities of Andrew Kopp and Adam Lowry together that sort of path of least resistance is to keep Eakin with uh, those dynamic wingers in, in Line A and Ehlers, and, and that's how they're going to start. And another guy to keep an eye on, another one of those under-the-radar guys, is a fellow first-round pick, Jack Vosovic, who uh, had a career year already. And for him, he's a guy that whose fitness level is absolutely off the charts. So while a lot of guys weren't able to get on the ice during the pause, Rosovic's a guy who comes into camp with the beep test and all those other uh, fitness things. His fitness level is off the charts, and he often really shines in the preseason. So here's a guy with a lot of confidence. He's playing with a couple guys who are known more as grinders, but they spend a lot of time in the offensive zone. So for me, although I've mentioned Nikolai Ehlers, I see as being an X factor in this series. I think that Rosovic is one of those under-the-radar guys who could really have a big impact because of the line mates he's playing with and because of his finishing ability. We'll close out with a bit of a two-parter here, but I mean, you know, you referenced it two years ago. This group went to the conference final. It felt like it was there for that team. And of course, they wound up losing to Vegas. They were in the playoffs in 2015 and had a better showing than uh, an, an 0 for 4 against the Ducks would indicate. And then obviously last year, I mean, I'd forgotten about, um, you know, you were writing about how in game five, they had it right on their stick. Uh, it was Kevin Hayes who could have put them up 3 nothing. Who knows how that series goes then. The Blues end up coming back, winning that game, winning game six. Just like, how would you describe the mindset of the Jets in terms of where they are in their arc? We know teams always want to win, but is there really a sense of urgency with this team right now? And what do you think are the X factors, aside from Hellebuck, who we know is the biggest one for this team in this five-game series against Calgary? Yeah, it's really interesting, Ryan. I mean, expectations are probably, in, in a lot of ways, the external expectations are probably at their lowest in compared to those other years. I mean, 2015, no. I mean, yes, that was their first run since coming back, uh, you know, with the relocation in 2011. There weren't a lot of expectations. But the crazy part about that series, even with Anaheim, is that they led for so such long chunks in games one, two, and three, but just were not able to put away that more experienced veteran team the Ducks had. I mean, after 2018, everyone thought the window was widest last year, and it was probably their best roster on paper, yet they ran into a team with a lot of resolve that was able to overcome that early deficit in Game 5, and obviously uh, full marks to them for winning the Cup. Man, I think there is a lot of hunger there. You see a lot of desperation from people like Blake Wheeler. He's been in the league a long time. Uh, He missed out on that Boston Bruins championship run because he was traded in that deal for Rich Peverly in 2011. Uh, it allowed him to take on such a bigger role with the Jets. But, I mean, that's always in the back of the player's mind when you come up with a group like that and miss out. Uh, I mean, now the Jets have this core group that's been together for a long time. They have a few scars from being battle-tested. I do think that they fall into that sleeper or dark horse category, if you will. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me for them to win a couple of rounds and, and maybe even make the conference final, but you just never know. But as you mentioned, I mean, with Hellebuck and Net. When a team has the best goalie probably in the entire National Hockey League, you have to take notice. And although it is a different and unheralded bunch on the back end, as long as they play a steady and stable game, the Jets have the type of special teams that when they're operating the way they were near the end of the year, that can also be a difference maker. And because of their high-end talent up front and their ability to check with guys like Lowry and Kopp, who I think will see a lot of Sean Monahan and Johnny Goodrow 
I really think that they're a team that matches up well first with the Flames, then obviously they're going to have to see what happens. There's some great teams in the West. So I do think the Jets are a team to take notice of. Uh, how far they go is really going to be up to their star players, uh, you know, specifically the guys that we talked about, Wheeler, Shifley, and Connor, but also that second line group of Ehlers and, and Lining. All right. Well, definitely an intriguing group, and we know you will be following them closely. Ken, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. All right. That is Ken Weeb. Thanks to Ken for joining us today on the show. Thanks to Eric Engels joining us from Montreal. Thanks to Rory Boylan. As always, our producer, Michael Maris. We'll be back next week talking preliminary round playoff hockey. Very exciting. So check back then for more Glass Rattling Hockey action on Tape to Tape.